another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. So this month we're joined by Bridget Wheeler, who is a barrister and who is actually related to our subject of the podcast this month, who is Ivy Williams, who was the first woman barrister in England and Wales. Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Ivy Williams's background. What kind of background was she from? Well, Ivy was from a fairly wealthy Oxford family. Her great-grandfather had been a farmer in Cote, um, which is not far from here, in the Shippard area. The family had originally come in from Wales, where I think it was about the 15 or 1600s they'd suffered religious persecution. But they'd been well established in the Oxfordshire area for generations when Ivy came along. By the time she was born, her grandfather had moved into Oxford and was living in the High Street, and he was a fairly successful mercer. He also dabbled in property. When he, when he died, he had amassed a city centre portfolio of 20 houses. The marriage certificate has never been found between Ivy's parents. Um, when Emma, Ivy's mother, signs her brother's birth certificate, she inadvertently signs in her maiden name. But I'm assuming there was a marriage, because in the wills, her father refers to his wife as his wife. And George, her father, didn't just look after Ivy. He looked after Ivy's brothers as well. He employed her brother. And Ivy used her uncle as her financial advisor for many years before she died. And she seems to have had quite an unconventional education as well for a woman of her period. Not, not really, I wouldn't say. I mean, from, for a, a fairly comfortably off family, she was homeschooled, which I think was probably the norm for girls. And so was her brother. Her grandfather, who had all this big property portfolio, had specifically left money for the education of the grandchildren. He'd left quite a lot of money for that. And he'd specifically said that the female of the line were to be treated the same. So Ivy was homeschooled, which I think wasn't that unusual. Uh, Winter, her brother, was also homeschooled, and she spoke six languages. So was that unusual, the learning that many languages? I think learning some of the languages. I mean, she spoke Russian, um, amongst other... Um, Latin, I imagine, was probably fairly standard, as was French. But to learn Russian, to, to learn it well enough to be able to translate um, books, as she did later in life, I think was possibly unusual. And she came from quite a well-connected family, would you say? She had all these kind of unusual experiences growing up. Yes, she was thrown into the middle of quite an intellectual family. Her father was a, a lawyer, her grandfather was a banker, mercer, man of business. Her uncles were solicitors as well. Her, her cousins, who were conveniently also known as Mr and Mrs Cousin, um, were missionaries. Her aunt's husband translated the Bible into Megalesi um, and worked in Madagascar for, for many years. Her immediate cousin Ethel Constance qualifies as a doctor in Oxford in 1904 and was the first woman to go into Bhutan, first first white woman to go to Bhutan, where she went single-handed over the mountains to help with the outbreak of cholera and was handed um, a reward by the king of Bhutan. So, so yeah, she had uh, interesting family around her, mainly either intellectuals, lawyers, or high, ch- well, not high church, but congregational church, non-conformists. The church was a really important part of their life. They gave a lot of money and property to the church. So how was it that she came to Oxford? Well, she was born, um, she, actually she was born in Newton Abbott, but her family came from Oxford. So when grandfather, who may have disapproved of the way in which things went, died, she returned with her father and with her brother and her mother, and they lived in King Edward Street for most of her life. Uh, she also lived with her 
uncle for a while, but the family was centred on Oxford from that point onwards. And how was it that she came to study at the Society of Home Students, as it was then known? The family seemed to have fairly forward-thinking views on the education of women. The grandfather had started her off with the fund for the, for the grandchildren in particular. Her brother had studied at Corpus Christi. He'd also read law there. She, I think, had shown an early aptitude for argument um, and so expressed an early interest in the law. And there were not that many um, alternatives. There was a home student, I think Somerville was around at the time, where most people seemed to go, but she was one of, I think, 56 home students at the time when she went into becoming a member of that society. The Society of St... which is now St Anne's. Just yeah, to... became the, the uh, Society of St Anne's and then the College of St Anne's. And I think she gave property to St Anne's. She seems to have given property to very many different interests. So what was her life like as an undergraduate? What was she...? Uh, well, I've read quite a lot on what life as an undergraduate was like for women. And it seems to have been, for the majority of women students, a lot of parties and not very good exam results. But I don't believe it would have been like that for uh, Ivy. I think Ivy was quite a serious young woman and she did quite well in her exams. And she was also living at home. So she didn't really experience a, a sudden change of atmosphere which would have freed her up to go to lots of parties. I don't think it was a party-going family particularly. She didn't drink. Um, she asked when she was called to the bar, she asked permission specially not to have to drink. It was compulsory to drink at uh, call night in those days. So she got special permission not to drink and not to wear her wig. And what were the restrictions on, on young women studying at that time? She obviously couldn't actually take a degree from Oxford. Well, London had started awarding degrees shortly after she was born in 1878. Um, the School of Jurisprudence was open to women to study but not to take degrees at Oxford in 1890. Um, she went into um, the Jurisprudence Department in 1896 and she took a number of exams um, which, which she passed but it didn't enable her to collect her degree until I think it was 1920. Um, but she also at the same time studied as a lot of them did for a degree at, at London. And ironically, she studied with her Oxford tutors, her degree mm -hmm. at London, which uh, she, she got um, 1903. Was that second degree just purely so she would have a, a formal qualification or was there an academic difference in the course from London? Well, what she got in 1903 from London was an LLD. She got a BCL in theory from Oxford in 1902 and an LLB in 1901. And she actually picked up the same degree, um, a doctorship in Oxford, quite a lot later, uh, 1923. So I, I don't suspect there was a great deal of difference in what they were doing. They, I, I have got a record of all the courses she took. She certainly seemed to have a strong leaning towards land law and uh, convincing. She never formally practised as a barrister. What, what did she spend her time doing? It's quite interesting because if you look at her life in around about 90, the early 1900s, she seems to have a, a small spark of militancy about her. She writes for the Solicitor's Journal, um, warning them that if they don't admit women to the profession, women will do it anyway. And they will. And, and she, she was slightly contradictory in what she said. She said, we will go to the lucrative areas of law and we'll exploit them. But in the next article she wrote, she talked about being the poor man's lawyer and acting without uh, charge. So she was threatening in 1903 to try and shake things up. Whereas, of course, she didn't get called for many years after that. And what seems to have happened is that this spirit of adventure, this enthusiasm, 
whilst her brother was also doing similar things, he was a political activist, he he was also a barrister, he was he was at the same chamber, uh, in the court she went to. This was all going really well, there was a lot of things going on, suffragette movement was gathering strength, women's suffrage generally was an important thing. And then she had a couple of personal tragedies. Um, first of all, her brother died really unexpectedly and suddenly um, when he was in his 20s, and they'd been terribly close. I think the whole family was very close. They, they, they were sort of drawn together by the strange circumstances of the, if, of the union, if you like. And so he may have been expected to do things that she then had to start doing. The family business was being run by her father with his help, with other family members' help. But her father was already ill when her brother died. He, the, the, the census at the time shows a nursemaid living with them. And he died a year later. Uh, it's quite unsurprising because he was certainly very upset and damaged by his son's very sudden and probably rather traumatic death which left Ivy about to set out on what could have been a career but with a mother who um, needed her with her father's estate to unwind and also her grandfather's estate was still unwinding it took 40 or 50 years for that to shake out so I think it acted as a break I think reality hit and um, then the first world war came along so circumstances contrived to put a break on that sort of spirit of let's go get it. And by the time she was actually called to the bar, which she did as soon as she possibly could, uh, she was in her 40s. And I think the speech she made at the time was quite interesting. For she said that she probably wasn't going to avail herself of the opportunity to practice, but that she hoped she would have some, something to offer for those who came after her. And I think by that stage she was teaching at Oxford. Uh, she was doing a lot of charitable work. She'd done lots of uh, work in the community. She was on the parish council and things like that. I think by that time she had settled, for, if you like, for being an enabler rather than a doer. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, her teaching work and, and the Society of Home Students and Anne's, how she was involved with that? Uh, I'm not certain how she actually became a tutor in the first place. And I also know that the uh, entry of women into the jurisprudence department at the time was quite slow. So she, she didn't have a rush of students. If you remember that um, the jurisprudence department admitted women from 1890, she didn't actually go into the jurisprudence department for six years after that, and she was the first class that went in. So it, there wasn't a rush to take up this uh, opportunity. Um, she seems to have fallen into being a tutor there because she was a constant presence, because she was a very active part of the university. She spoke at uh, mock trials where she was a student she was elected president of the debating society and she she was very present a lot of the premises used by the home students and other the libraries were either very close to her where she lived or close to her father's business so she she was literally on the doorstep she had i think from memory about six students to start with uh, it was a slow beginning and um, she, she remained at St Anne's until she retired. There were periods of time when she seems to have been pretty inactive. Uh, she had a nasty accident at one stage in her life. She went after her mother died, which also coincided with being almost immediately after her call to the bar. I think she felt free uh, and she went skiing in her 40s um, in a time when perhaps it wasn't very common to go skiing. And she had a little accident hurt her knee and it dogged her for 10 years. She had 10 years of almost constant treatment in 
nursing homes in Oxford, in Harrogate, in Wales, taking sea cures. She brought us up a tricycle to try and get her strength up. And it really made it very difficult for her to, to um, do a job that involves standing. So that is a period of time when you see her doing things like her work on the Swiss Civil Code or the sources of law in the Swiss Civil Code, when I suspect she was housebound a lot of the time. And I'm told by her, I was told by her cousin, who was my great uncle, she was not very good with pain. She seemed to be unusually sensitive to it. She said she was an enabler rather than a doer, but she did actually do a lot of things and was the first woman to, to achieve a number of things. Could you talk a bit more about that? Um, she, she was the first woman to achieve a number of things, although she was also not the first woman to achieve a number of things. Um, she wasn't, for example, the first woman to practice as a barrister, nor was she the first woman to study law. But she, what she was was the first woman to be called as a barrister, even though she didn't practice. She was also the first woman to get a doctorate in law at Oxford, apart from people who had been given them on an honorary basis. And she, she was amongst the first class of women students who studied law at Oxford. So those are her, if you like, first misses. And there were an awful lot of women around at the time who are trying and failing to do these things. Um, there was an Irish woman barrister who practised before her, but that was in Ireland. So it was a time when there was a lot of bubbling under going on. And um, what I would say about this is, if you, if you look up Ivy Williams in any reference book, you will always see first woman barrister in England and Wales. I think that's really not to give her full credit for everything else that she did. So she seems to have been a really extraordinary character and she had quite a strong role within the various communities that she was a part of. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Yes, indeed. Um, the family moved from central Oxford uh, to uh, Sunnyside, which is in uh, Hollows Road. And they had a large house there and they were very strongly supportive of the congregational church there. And I think that's in the Cowley district. And she was a parish councillor. And I think she was secretary of the parish council as well when she was living there. When her father and mother died, she gave property. She gave the house at Sunnyside, which was a significant property with quite a lot of acreage, to the Radcliffe. And she gave another property her father had given her shortly before he died, which was the manse uh, in the same area, to the congregational church. She spent a lot of time tying up the formalities of that because both properties had been acquired piecemeal and it was a complicated legal transaction. But she was determined, it seems, from the minute she inherited, and she inherited what was probably the equivalent of £8 million in today's money, and she pretty much gave it all away. So she gave it to the church, she gave it to the hospital, she gave um, generously to the libraries. I believe she gave property to St Anne's. And, of course, she endowed scholarships. She put a considerable, considerable amount of her wealth into the Winter Williams Scholarship, and another one, whose name I can't remember, but the Winter Williams one was specifically to promote women in the law. So this is what I mean when I say she's an enabler. She, she, she not only was hands-on helping students, but she also, in practical terms, gave money, gave things to help others. So what do you think Ivy's legacy is? I think it's very easy to write Ivy off as just being the first person to have achieved a certain thing. And I think she's a great deal more than that. I would think that you would probably today call her a gentle disruptor. She is someone who has enabled things to happen. She opened the gate by obtaining the um, call to the bar to others behind her. But really what she did more importantly, I think, was that she made things happen for others 
She did this in two ways. She did it in practical terms by giving her money to the hospital, to the church, to the libraries, to scholarships to encourage the study of law. But she did it in practical terms and also in personal terms. And by personal terms, I mean she was a hands-on tutor at, at St Anne's. She kept in touch with her students after they had left her. And when her own sight failed towards the end of her life, rather than just sitting back, she decided to go out and help the blind. So she wrote a, a, a Braille primer. And I do remember my great-aunt Cordelia arriving at the house with an enormous Braille book, which Ivy had prepared for her because Cordelia was losing her sight as well. So she, she didn't stop with herself. She tried to look beyond that. So, yeah, a, a disruptor, but an enabler. So you mentioned this family connection to Ivy. How did you first come across her and, and what is it that drew you to her? Well, Ivy had been a bit of a legend in the family. My, my grandfather moved from Oxford when he married. And although the family were very close, uh, I never met any of them, apart from a, a couple of aunts and uncles when times were hard. So all I knew about them was what he told me. And he was quite a quiet and shy man. But they were terribly, terribly proud of Ivy. They, if, you, if they ever spoke of anyone, they would say Ivy and they would say she was a first woman barrister. So that's what I knew about Ivy. And that encouraged me to go look and find out a bit more about her. And I discovered the book of letters my uncle Percy had left. He was her solicitor. And in it, although they're, unfortunately they're one-sided, you can only see him writing to her, but you get a spirit of what she must have said to him, for him to write back. And you find out that she's talking about how difficult it is to ride a tricycle up a steep hill and how cold the sea can be in Harrogate in February. And so she was she was a, having a very personal conversation with her, her legal advisor, but also her cousin, which gave you some indication of her determination and her... I suppose independence because she, she never married she had a number of close friends but I think really her work was quite important to her and it really obsessed her and um, probably prevented her marrying a lot of them didn't marry then then none of my grandfather's siblings there were five of them married so I get the impression of somebody who was determined nice measured quite unemotional but occasionally emotional very clever um, and probably thwarted a bit by circumstances if it hadn't been for the death of her brother and her father when they when they did and the war who knows what she might have done it might have been all terribly different Bridget thank you so much for joining us it's been great I really enjoyed talking about Ivy thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past, 